I want to invite you to open your Bibles, the Bible that you brought with you. And if you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible there in the pew that if you don't have a Bible, meaning you didn't forget to bring one, you're welcome to take that Bible as our gift today to Daniel chapter 3. And if you're using your phone, just open up that app like I told you and you'll go right there. If you're using the pew Bible, it's page 615. We just started a sermon series on the book of Daniel. And the book of Daniel was written as an encouragement in the midst of living in captivity. It really is how to thrive in the midst of being in exile. And this morning as we come to the third chapter of Daniel, a new conflict arises. And I'm going to summarize the first part before we dive in. So I'm going to, so as you have it open, you can kind of follow along. This, we're told by the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this, this incident happened probably in the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. And nearly two decades, therefore, if that, if that math is right, two decades after the events of chapter 2. And if you weren't with us in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar was the beneficiary of some firsthand revelation of the God of Israel's wisdom and power. Well, that was then and this is now. Because the king, in chapter, by chapter 3, 18 years later, something like that, has either forgotten or decided to ignore the lessons he learned. Nebuchadnezzar's ego gets the better of him, as we are told, the very first verse in chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high and 9 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Whether this image was a likeness of the king himself or the, an image of a god is not known. But what is clear is erected on the plain of Dura, and that word Dura meant fortress. So think about the significance of that. Erected on the fortress was an imposing statue intended to stand as a reflection of the might of the empire that he lords over. Nebuchadnezzar, my friends, is looking to make his mark. He's building something to ensure his legacy. But if you're kind of following along as I'm taking you through the first part of this, seeing this intimidating sign of world dominance is not enough, however. As four sets of royal advisors and all the other officials of Babylon are gathered together, as every kind of instrument and its accompanying musician is assembled in the midst of all the pomp and pageantry of the dedication ceremony for this statue, Nebuchadnezzar reveals his true intentions. Right before the band strikes it up and plays their first note, the king orders his entire empire to bow down in homage before his creation. And with a word, a demand for a pledge of loyalty to the king, worship or die becomes the choice. As everyone begins to feel the heat, the heat of the blazing furnace, probably the furnace that forged this statue, this furnace that's positioned as the consequence for any act of civil disobedience, immediately all the people fall down. All of them, except for Daniel's three friends. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who, as I said last week, shall now be thereafter known as Rack, Shack, and Benny. You might notice that Daniel is missing from this story. Interesting. We don't know why. Perhaps he's out of town on royal business, but he's totally absent here. In fact, this is the only chapter in the book of Daniel where he receives no mention. But Rack, Shack, and Benny are present. And his administrators over the province of Babylon they're summoned, like everybody else, to Dura. 
And they've heard the king's instructions. They listen to the music. And they watch everyone else lying before the statue, and they know what's at stake. And yet, they remain standing. Now, I really want you to picture the scene because really, as three guys in a mass of thousands upon thousands of people, they clearly didn't stand out. I mean, who would, right? They didn't stand out, if you're following just again along as I'm continuing to summarize, until professional jealousy motivated some of their fellow wise men to bring their behavior to the attention of the king. And if you have Daniel 3 open, that's where we're going to begin to read in verse 13 as they're brought before King Nebuchadnezzar. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the music, the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I have made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. The Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of his strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, well, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of God. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Keep those Bibles open, please. Last week, last week, through the example of Daniel in chapter 2, I talked about one of our goals as a community. And one of those goals was, is being an, a credible and visible witness for the kingdom of God. That's one of our goals at Grace, to be a credible and visible witness for the kingdom of God. And this morning, through the story of chapter 3, I'd like to focus on our second goal as a community. The third, by the way, the third, so being a visible witness for the kingdom of God. The third is leaving a testimony 
of the gospel of God in our lives. And the one in the middle that I want to focus on today, our second goal, is revealing embassies of the kingdom of heaven through our lives. Revealing embassies of the kingdom of heaven through our lives. If we are described as ambassadors for Christ, then the spaces we occupy, the places we inhabit, ought to become embassies, outposts of the authority and power of the reign of God, of the faith, hope, and love of the kingdom of heaven. And I believe that through the story of Rack, Shack, and Benny, and Nebuchadnezzar, we witness this morning a powerful and uncompromising example of what this involves. With this in mind, there are two things I want to cover this morning. The first is our greatest obstacle to the kingdom of heaven. The second is how we reside in the kingdom of heaven. Two things, the greatest obstacle we have to the kingdom of heaven, and second, how we reside in the kingdom of heaven. But before we go any further, and I've done this each week, but in case some of you haven't been with us, let's define what we mean by the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is the sovereignty, the exercise of the reign and will of God. To put it in more plain terms, as we see time and time again here in Daniel's story, the kingdom of God is revealed in the demonstration that God is in control, that God has a plan, and as a result of both of these realities, we have a purpose, a role, a place in that kingdom. So with that in mind, what is our greatest obstacle to the kingdom of heaven, to abiding in the center of God's will, to thriving in the confidence and security that God is in control, that God has a plan, and we have a purpose. The greatest obstacle is commandment number one. If you know God's top ten, commandment number one, the greatest obstacle is idolatry. Worshiping, serving, and glorifying anything before our creator, our redeemer, and sustainer. And King Nebuchadnezzar in chapter three demonstrates this for us on a grand scale. The moment that Nebuchadnezzar turns an impressive piece of architecture into an, a gigantic object of defiance and commands worship of the state, Nebuchadnezzar draws a line in the sand, presuming to wield an authority and power greater than the Lord God's. As it reads, men of every language gather around this colossal statement of pride. Nebuchadnezzar's construction project is not unlike another building that once towered long ago over Babylon. You know what I'm talking about? When the whole of humanity sought to make a name for themselves to rival the name of God. The Tower of Babel. Babylon. Babel. Yes, it is related. This is worth remembering, this association. Because the problem of idolatry is not just what threatens a king in this story. It is so easy to just position King Nebuchadnezzar as the bad guy, the evil dude in the story. But the problem of idolatry is not just what threatens a king, it threatens all of us. My friends, this is one of those Sundays where the scriptures remind us of something we don't like to hear. We don't like to acknowledge, and it's this. We all, every single one of us, we all set up idols for the purpose of worship. And this is how we get on the wrong side of the kingdom. 
And, I, and what I'm talking about right now, there are, while there are places in our world where traditional idol worship still occurs, and what do I mean by traditional idol worship? There are places in our world where they are still framing or forging an object of wood, metal, or clay and deifying it as some object of devotion or service. That's not what I'm referring to today. I'm not accusing any of you of going home and crafting idols. When I say that we are all setting up idols, I'm talking about the deeper reality that that external form points to. I'm talking about inter internal idol worship. Worship within the heart. Idol worship within the heart. That's our concern. Because that kind of idolatry is universal. It's timeless. It transcends the cultural or ethnic divide. What is an idol? An idol is anything that rivals or supplants and therefore denies God's rightful role in our lives. Now this is really important because we see stories in the Old Testament and we tend to think of it as sort of an idolatry in sort of a one-dimensional way. Idolatry isn't just when we're drawn, drawn to things that are bad. You know, in the Old Testament, oh, they made an idol to the God of Baal, or they made an idol, oh, that's bad. Idolatry is not just when we're drawn to things that are bad. More often than not, idolatry is when we take the good things of God and turn them into ultimate things. In other words, we put such things above God or before God, making them more important to us than the Lord from whom they are given. You with me? Consider the example of Nebuchadnezzar here. Let's go back to it again. Previously, as I told you years ago, you can find this again in chapter 2. The Lord gave Nebuchadnezzar a dream. A dream of a statue. We looked at this last week. A picture of the future. But within that picture was, you might remember, an affirmation of the prosperity of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. He praises Nebuchadnezzar's reign. And ultimately, in the, end, the outcome of that dream, the shattering of the statue... And that shattering of the statue again was reflecting all the empires of this world falling. In that conclusion of that dream was an invitation for Nebuchadnezzar to look beyond his finite success and to embrace the greater reign of God. But years later, more than almost two decades, what does Nebuchadnezzar do? The Babylonian king takes a good dream and turns it into a nightmare. He takes a good dream and he turns it into a nightmare. How? By making it about himself. In constructing a statue even more beautiful than the one in his dream. You remember in the, in the dream the statue just had a head of gold? What does Nebuchadnezzar do here? The entire thing is made of gold. From the top of the head to the tips of the toes. And in doing that, Nebuchadnezzar becomes the architect of his own destruction. And beloved, so do we when we make idols out of the gifts that God gives us. I, I, this is the, you know, the heavier part of the sermon. I point you to the sermon reflection questions as a way to get even deeper into this, but I want you to think about idolatry in your own life, how we make idols out of the good gifts that God gives us. We can and do make idols out of our possessions. That's what we normally think about first, right? We make idols out of the stuff we accumulate. And I'm not just talking material resources like money or property. I'm also talking about resources like knowledge and influence. We can make those things idols, good things that God gives us that we put above 
our attention and devotion to God. We can make idols out of our pleasures. We experience this in our world all the time. When we make idols out of our pleasures, when this happens, when we worship and serve what pleases us, that's what we call addiction, right? When we worship and serve what pleases us, that's what we call addiction, and it's a problem. We can make an idol out of power. We can make an idol out of having, wanting, and holding on to control over ourselves, an idol of autonomy. We can even make an idol over having control, power over others, having authority. And the one that's probably the hardest for us to hear really makes us fidgety in our seats, because we don't like to think this is so, but we can make idols out of our relationships. We can even turn our relationships, our God-given relationships, into idols. And that's where the approval, the acceptance, or the will of a spouse, a child, or a friend becomes our fixation. Where the approval, the acceptance, or the will of a spouse, a family member, a child, or a friend becomes the ultimate driver of our decisions and behaviors over and against God's. See, the danger of idolatry, the trap of deifying things or relationships as the center of our lives, the danger of allowing them to absorb our heart and imagination more than God, the danger is we're asking them to bear a weight, an expectation they cannot manage. We're asking them to give us significance and fulfillment that only the Lord can give. And again, we talked about possessions, we talked about power, but think about it in your relationships. When you place that weight of expectation upon your spouse, your children, a family member, a friend, to give you satisfaction and fulfillment that only God can give. How many of us? That is at the root of our disappointment with our children. How many of us? That is the root of our conflict with our spouse. How many of us? That's the divide within our families. How many of us? That's what's broken friendships in our lives because we are asking those people to give us significance and fulfillment that only God can give. We have made them or we have allowed themselves to be made an idol in our lives. In this way, when you think about idolatry in this way, idolatry, our idols are always harmful to ourselves and to others because they always disappoint us. They always leave us wanting, demanding, begging, manipulating for more, but it's never enough. Is this starting to sound like some of the fights you're having? We want, we demand, we beg, we manipulate for more, but here's the thing, it's never enough. And so we always find ourselves frustrated, we always find ourselves angry, we always find ourselves discontented, and we take out our frustrations, our anger, and our discontent on who? Those around us. Look at Nebuchadnezzar. Look at Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter three. He has the attention and submission of an empire. Thousands upon thousands of people are bowing down before what he has built. But he needs to prove it to himself that he's the king, that he's in control. He needs more attention, more devotion from his subjects. He has countless people bowing down, but three out of a thousands upon thousands stand out. And what's his reaction? You heard it, right? He is frustrated with rage. And he threatens. And what does he threaten? And what does he deliver? Violence. I will have my way. If you're swimming in what the possible idols are in your life, and, and I hope that that is something that is pushing you this morning, 
Let me tell you this. The list of potential idols is vast. But idolatry in all its forms, being about the things or relationships that I cling to for value, significance, or identity apart from God, that means that fundamentally, idolatry, if you want to really break it down, is about worship of the self. Idolatry is ultimately about the worship of the self. If it's all about identity, significance, and fulfillment for myself, idolatry is ultimately about the worship of the self. Whatever form it takes, it's about me. And again, here, notice in verse 15, if you have your Bible open, how Nebuchadnezzar reflects that idolatry is about worship to the self, that it all, it all boils down to this, when, as he threatens Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego with a blazing furnace, look at the question he asks in verse 15. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? My hand. This is about me. The kingdom of self, my friends, the kingdom of self is the chief competitor and obstacle to the kingdom of God. Now, I know there are times when some external evil is the main problem, and I'm not dancing around that. But more often than not, the biggest obstacle to the kingdom of God is me, myself, and I. I am what gets in the way of God fully reigning in my life. There's a reason why. Jesus... In believing in him, in following him, Jesus, do you remember this? Bids us to come and die to ourselves. I must let go of me. I must let go of control. I must let go of a dream. I must let go of what I cling to for worth and significance apart or above God. Before our greatest obstacle idolatry, which I've defined, laid out for you this morning, I want to talk about, secondly, the way to reside in the kingdom of God. The way to reside in the kingdom of God before the greatest obstacle of idolatry is to surrender to the kingdom of God rather than to the kingdom of self. The way to reside in the kingdom of God is to surrender to the kingdom of God rather than to the kingdom of self. Jesus also teaches us this way, too. Do you remember when he says, a person cannot serve two masters, right? Rack, Shack, and Benny in Daniel chapter 3 stand before two kingdoms, two empires. Both kingdoms, both empires project the power to protect, deliver, and prosper them. Both demand their undivided attention and loyalty. Both insist allegiance to them is a matter of life or death. And yet, both stand in total contradiction to each other. And faced with two kingdoms, Rack, Shack, and Benny have no choice but to surrender. They have no choice but to surrender. The challenge, my friends, is surrendering to the right kingdom. Standing before the throne of Nebuchadnezzar with the king offering them a way out. You see that, right? The king brings them in personally to the, to the throne room and offers them a way out, a second chance. And these three men could have convinced themselves, hey, you know what, this golden image really is nothing, you know, it's no big deal. So it wouldn't hurt us if we just kind of went along to keep the appearance of people who were loyal to the throne. And yet when they are confronted by the kingdom of self, the empire of Babylon, Rack, Shack, and Benny surrender to the kingdom of God. They recognize the ultimate authority and greater power of God. Hear their words, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. 
by faith and trust in their act of surrender before the reign of the Lord rather than the kingdom of Babylon, the kingdom of self, an embassy of the kingdom of heaven becomes visible for all to see. I'm making a turn here. In what Rakshak and many do, suddenly an embassy of the kingdom of heaven becomes visible for all to see. Before I explain, let's step back a second and just clarify what's an embassy. I, I went to Washington, D.C. Uh, on the latter half of the summer, and I was seeing a good buddy, and he's got a, uh, a boy who's in uh, middle school, and we were going out to dinner. And as we were going out to dinner, I noticed a building across the street that was waving the flag of Mexico. It was an embassy. And so as we were going to dinner, I said, hey, after dinner, why don't we go to, why don't we go to Mexico? And he's like, yeah, right, okay. He's like, it's like we're not, we don't have time to go to Mexico. We just got to go, go across the street. Mexico's right there. It's like, that's not Mexico. I go, yes, it is. Walk on that, in that building. That is Mexico right there. We had this great conversation over dinner about what an embassy is. What's an embassy? An embassy is a territory within the borders of another nation that exists as a sovereign state. What that means is the rules, the laws, the practices within its borders are the same as would be in the homeland it represents. That marked out territory is for all purposes considered to be that nation. Now with that in mind, look what happens here, right? Nebuchadnezzar, you remember this, passes a death sentence. Execution by fiery furnace. But even as he stokes the flames seven times hotter than usual and drops Rakshak and Benny into the scorching heat of the oven, the fire doesn't hurt. The fire can't touch them. Why? Because the rules of Babylon no longer apply in the embassy of the kingdom of heaven. Ironically, you caught this, right? Loyalty to the king on the part of the strong men who toss Rakshak and Benny into the fire brings death. Isn't that ironic? Their loyalty to the king brings death because the flames leaping from the furnace, we're told, are so hot. But Nebuchadnezzar's judgment upon Rakshak and Benny never generates any heat. Why? They are flame retardant because the law of Babylon is superseded by the embassy, by the grace of the kingdom of heaven. As two or more are gathered in God's name, I love this part of the story, the king can hardly believe his eyes as he suddenly counts four in the furnace. To make sure his eyes are not failing him, he asks his advisors to verify what he is seeing. And his four sets of royal advisors say, yep, thumbs up, and then crowd around the three men who have been set for incineration as they gather around and find them unhurt, you hear, love this description, their hair is not singed, their clothing is not scorched, they're not smelling of smoke, of fire, they're completely unbound. Do you catch this at the end of the story? We didn't read this part, but it's there. Nebuchadnezzar finally starts to understand what has happened. A divine ambassador has showed up. An embassy of another kingdom, a greater, more powerful kingdom, the kingdom of God was revealed. I want to take you to another scripture you can look at later because what's awesome about this story is the prophet Isaiah, and I told you when you read Daniel, you got to go back and read Isaiah and you got to read Jeremiah. Isaiah actually lays the groundwork for this embassy when he declared on the Lord's behalf, Isaiah 43, look at it later, when he declares, fear not, this is awesome, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, the flame will not consume you. <laughs> Beloved, there is not one inch in all of creation that God has not declared as his own. That was a brief uh, 
brief uh, uh, back to the angel game, the wave. Anytime I say a certain word, the wave was going to happen, and my son has executed it. Please do not follow his lead. I'll deal with you when I get home. <laughs> oh, man. All right. There's not one inch in all creation that God does not declare as his own, that the Lord has not claimed and established through the coming and giving, the dying and rising of his son, Jesus Christ. What you see in this scene, what we witness together, is Rakshak and Benny knew they might be stationed in the nation of Babylon, but they believed they were residing in the kingdom of heaven. My friends, do we recognize the kingdom? Are we residing in the kingdom before all the other would-be kingdoms of this world? Are we surrendering, yielding to his reign, his direction, his influence, rather than bowing down to the whim and will of any other person, including ourselves? My friends, we reside in the kingdom of God whenever we, just like Rakshak and Benny, surrender to the kingdom of God. And surrendering to the kingdom of God means abiding in the promises of God. Notice that even as the heat gets turned way up, Rakshak and Benny reassert that God is in control, that God has a plan, an outcome, notice this, a path that even goes beyond death. Pay attention to verse 18 in your Bible there. When they say, but even if he, God, does not, does not what? Does not rescue us. Even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Rack, Shack, and Benny, in surrendering before the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom of self, do not name or claim anything. They do not demand that God deliver them in the way that they think is best. This is amazing. They trust that he will deliver them as he knows is best. My friends, residing in the kingdom of God is abiding in the promises of God. And that means putting our trust not just in the Lord's abilities, what God is able to do. It is entrusting our lives to the Lord's character, believing that God is good. From our limited human perspective, the Lord may appear to be doing nothing. But our Father will always keep his promises. Our Father's deliverance may come in this life or in the life to come. But our faith, our trust, our surrender is that his grace is always operating to provide what is best for our eternal good. You hear me this morning, church? Do you believe this? Do you believe that? Despite appearances to the contrary, even if the outcome of your prayers is not what you wanted, even if it seems like God is doing nothing, are you willing to wait on the Lord? To abide in the promises of God's character. Once again, abiding in the promises of God is an act of surrender, of submission to the work of the kingdom of God. It's a matter of submission rather than taking matters into our own hands in the name of God. And we're good at that, church taking matters into our own hands in the name of God. Notice, Rakshak and Benny didn't fight for the kingdom of heaven here. There was no violent protest. There was no political maneuvering. There was not even public hand-wringing on their part. 
The contours of their embassy for the kingdom of heaven was their abiding faith and humble trust in letting God work in and through them. Their rescue now or their salvation on the other side of eternity. I find the book of Daniel particularly timely during this election season. I find the book of Daniel particularly timing timely during this election season when I hear many Christians struggling in the midst of the candidates from which with they have to choose. I don't know if you've noticed it. I don't know if you feel this way. But on both sides of the aisle, within the community of faith, there is dissatisfaction and bewilderment. While many find this troubling, I'm here to say to you this morning, I find it compelling. Because perhaps... For the first time in a long time, church, we as followers of Christ are being forced to vote not based first on our politics, but on our theology. Our theology, what we believe, what we perceive about the kingdom of God ought to drive our political decisions. Hear that, church. Our theology, what we believe, what we perceive about the kingdom of God ought to drive our political decisions, but for a long time, can we confess that it's been the other way around? It's been the other way around. And for the first time, perhaps, we're being forced to think first about our theology. Discontented with our political options, as many of us seem to be, Maybe not all. Let us view the fiery furnace before us in terms of the reality and the promise of the kingdom of God. And my intention this morning is to offend both Democrats and Republicans, just so you know. Because late-breaking news flash, there are Democrats in this room. There's Republicans in this room. Late-breaking news flash, there are Christians in this room. So let's look at our political options before the fiery furnace, before the reality and the promise of the kingdom of God. Is our response, what seems to be predominant at least in in some circles that I see, not all, is our response in the midst of what's going on around us to be continually fighting for our rights as believers? Man, that's the charge of the church. We want to fight for our rights as believers. Is that supposed to be our response to continually fight for our rights as believers Or, or is our response in terms of the kingdom of God to be resting on the righteousness of Christ? no matter what laws are passed. Resting on the righteousness of Christ rather than demanding our rights. Should the choice we make in the next couple of weeks, should the choice we make, the political compromise, you know, we're all talking ourselves into, be about who will sit on the Supreme Court? Or are we uncompromising in our faith that no matter how the bench swings, we know the one who sits on the throne of heaven? Will our agenda in this election be self-serving? Is that the way of the kingdom of heaven? Is our agenda in this election to be self-serving based primarily on what serves us? Or is the agenda of the kingdom of heaven about serving others? Focusing on what is best for our neighbor. I really want to be clear on this. I am not telling anyone here how to vote. I'm not. What I'm asking is for all of us to reflect on the grid through which we cast our vote. What I am declaring for us to embrace and trust is that each of our votes, while important, are not the most significant thing that we have to offer. 
our witness for Christ is. Residing in the kingdom of God by abiding in the promises of God through the conduct and character of our lives. In the spaces and places, the relationships and communities we occupy, revealing embassies of the kingdom of heaven, regardless of who sits in the White House, no matter which political party is in power. My friends, some people read this story as a story of resistance of a standing against forces opposed to God's will. But I'm going to tell you, if you haven't caught this already, I read this as a story of surrender. Of standing on the word of God and bearing witness to the greater and gracious power of a God who doesn't save us from the fire. Notice that in this story. Who doesn't save us from the fire, but stands with us in the furnace and saves us by bringing us through the fire out the other side, refined, stronger, and reflecting the glory of God as ambassadors for the kingdom. Whenever we find ourselves in the crucible of faith, let's be sure we're surrendering to the right kingdom. Our calling is not to throw the weight of our judgment around as ambassadors for Christ, nor is our calling to let whatever voice, power, or influence we have as the church to go to our heads or compromise our hearts. Our calling as ambassadors for Christ is taking up his cross and following him by standing in the fire, daring to enter into the many hells on earth, both personal and private, which rage on this earth. Daring to stand in those fires and reveal embassies of the kingdom of heaven. To reveal embassies of the kingdom of heaven by refusing to answer hate in kind but instead to offer love. By refusing to answer injustice with vengeance, but instead to extend the righteousness of mercy and forgiveness. To refuse to bow down before arrogance and fear, but instead to walk humbly before God by serving others in gentleness and peace. My friends, as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and until we go home where Jesus comes back, that is the valley we are in. Kid yourself not. As we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, let us fear no evil. For the Lord our God is with us. The light of the radiance of Christ shines brighter than the fires of hell on earth. The furnaces of hatred and fear will not overtake us. And the promise of resurrection life always overshadows the threat of death. Amen.